Well, today is the last convocation of the uh, semester, and pretty soon you'll all be going home. You'll all be uh, taking exams next week, which is probably a reason that the Crimson Flood sang that song, Hold On, as the storms come in here, because next week that's indeed what will happen. Uh, you know, with the offering that we just took for the Salvation Army is very important. The Salvation Army has always made a huge difference, not only around the world, but in our community. And we have uh, partnered with them and have been working with them for a number of years to try to make a difference in our community to help those who are less fortunate than we are. Uh, and, you know, one thing that uh, is exciting for me is the Salvation Army now, Chesley, as you know, is housed uh, in a location over, uh, over by Miller Park, by the plaza. And one of the buildings that is now the headquarters of the Salvation Army here in Lynchburg is the same building that back in 1952 was the Park Avenue Baptist Church where my dad walked in there on a Sunday night in 1952 and he gave his life to Jesus Christ and he was baptized in that building. And uh, next year, Thomas Road Baptist Church is going to be partnering with the Salvation Army and we are going to be renovating that building uh, in honor and in memory of my dad and so forever. That building that will be used by the Salvation Army to make a difference in our community will be the same building uh, where my dad uh, met Jesus Christ for the very first time. And so we're excited about that. And I encourage you, as you leave today, they're going to have those, uh, those kettles out there. Johnny will be out there ringing the bell. Becky, uh, my, my sister-in-law, will be out there ringing the bell. You know, you need to go by and, and do that. Because, again, this is something that, you know, to us, is this just a little bit of change in our pockets or, or maybe a dollar, two dollars, something like that. But for the lives of people around our community who don't know where their next meal is going to come from, to those people who right now are sitting there at home trying to figure out how they're going to afford to buy even one toy for their child for Christmas, to that family who's sitting there thinking, what are we going to do for our Christmas meal because we can't afford to even uh, pay our bills, this will make a huge difference in their lives. And so I encourage you to go by and see Johnny and see Becky out there as you leave today and to try to make a difference in the Salvation Army. Uh, you know, the Salvation Army, as, she, as Chesley uh, shared, was started back in 1865 in England. And, and over these last 133 years, the Salvation Army has been in existence. Isn't it amazing to see the difference that it has made around the world? You could truly say that this is an organization that was founded in England but has now achieved something called greatness. Something called greatness. All of us are sitting here in this room today. We've come to this place. We've come to liberty to try to figure out how to become great. Many of you want to figure out how to be great in whatever career you're going to be going into. You want to be the best. We all want to be the best. We all want to be liked. We all want to be popular. We all want to make a difference. We all want to be a great, to be great. But the question is, how do we become great? What is the answer to the question is, how do you obtain greatness. The world will give you lots of answers. The world will tell you, in order to be great, you've got to have lots of money. You've got to be filthy rich if you want to be great. In the last few months, we've seen on Wall Street a lot of people who thought they were great, maybe are not great anymore in their own eyes. The world will tell you, you know what, if you're going to be great, you've got to be powerful. You've got to have, you've got to have great power. You've got to control something. You've got to control people. You've got to have lots of people that, that are working for you. The world will tell you in order to be great that, that you have to be somebody who, who is famous. You've got to be well-known. 
You can pick up any magazine on the shelves of any grocery store in this town. You can turn on the television and watch any of the programs. And all of the stories are about those people who are so great because they're famous. And we find out who is dating this week and who broke up this week and who's pregnant this week and, and who was caught uh, you know, leaving their wife and, and going over and hanging out with some other girl. We find out all of these things because these people are famous and the world will tell you that, that fame can be equated to, to greatness. The world will tell you that greatness comes from knowledge, that the smarter you are, the more intelligent you are, the more degrees that you have, that makes you great. And here at Liberty University, obviously, we want all of you to be intelligent. We want all of you to get good grades. We want all of you to, get, to obtain all of that knowledge that, that our wonderful professors here at Liberty are trying to, to pour into you. But I will tell you this, knowledge does not equate with greatness. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter what the grades that you get. None of that will become greatness. Today in this last convocation before we all head out for the Christmas holidays, some of you, this will be the last convocation that you sit in at Liberty because you're graduating this week. You're done. And you're walking away from Liberty University never to return as a student again. You're going out into the career world. You're going out into to make a difference. And, and what I wanted to talk about today is to answer that question. What is greatness? How do we become great? What can we do to obtain greatness? And I think the Bible gives us a pretty clear picture of where we can find the answer in Job chapter 1. Many of us know the story. We've read it. We've seen it. We've, we've heard about his life. We, we know exactly who Job is and what he was able to do and what he went through. But in this passage today, I think we can find a pretty clear picture of, of really what greatness is all about. In Job chapter 1, I want to read to you the description. Before we get into the book, before we get into the story, before you start reading the 42 chapters that make up the book of Job and you find out all of the things that happened to him and, and what all of his friends told him and what his wife told him and, and the things that he lost, before any of that takes place, before anything that is found in this book, God gives a description of who Job is. And I want to share that with you this morning as we begin. It says in Job chapter 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and a very large household. So that this man, listen to this, was the greatest of all of the people of the East. Here in this description in Job chapter 1, we pretty quickly find out that Job is described as the man who is the greatest of his time. A man that God looked at and said that he was blameless. A man that, that shunned evil, walked away from evil, who followed after God. He had all the possessions. He had all of the fame. He had all of the knowledge. I mean, how could he have obtained all those riches without the knowledge that, that is required to get there? All of the things that he had. But in this description of Job... God pretty quickly says that there was a man who was blameless and who shunned evil and he was greatest in the East. Today when we talk about what it takes to obtain greatness, what it takes to actually become great, well the first thing we've got to do is we've got to understand and accept and realize what it is that greatness is not. What greatness does not consist of. In this passage in Job chapter 1, we get a pretty clear, uh, clear picture in the first couple chapters here uh, of what greatness is not. 
The first thing we know is that greatness is not materialism. If you look in, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Did Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he, is, all that he has in his power... Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here, when Satan came into the presence of God, and God said, hey, have you checked out my servant Job? You know, you're walking all around the earth. You're, you're going to and fro, and you're trying to see what it is that you can destroy, of, of whom you can devour. But have you, have you checked out my servant Job? Here's a guy who has everything. He, he walks away from evil. He follows after me. He's an upright man. He's a blameless man. And Satan said, sure. Well, of course he is. You've put a hedge around him. You've blessed him with all of these, these riches. You've given him all of these things. Why wouldn't he bless you? But you, God, you take those things away from him. You strike him with your hand. And he will curse you to your face. Well, we know the story. We know what happens next. God says, go. Take whatever it is that you want to take from him. Just don't touch his body. Don't touch his person. But you can take it all away. And so in the following verses, we read how Satan did just that. We can read in this passage in Job chapter 1 and find out quickly that all of his camels were destroyed. All the donkeys were destroyed. All of his possessions were taken. Even his children were destroyed. That in an instant, a windstorm came and knocked down the tent and, and killed all of his family took everything away from him that was listed in Job chapter 1 in his first few verses. Everything that Job had, everything that Job owned, everything that Satan said was the reason that Job honored God and Satan took from him. Well, what was the result of that? What exactly happened when, when all of that was taken from him? If you look in verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. You see, the world will tell you that materialism is important. At Christmas time, especially at Christmas time, materialism it seems to overtake everything. All of the stores, all of the media, everything is about what we can own. Everything is about what we can get. Everything is about what we can buy. It's all about materialism. It's all about possessions. It's all about riches. It's all about making sure that we have the latest and the greatest of everything. But yet here, when Satan said, Job honors you, God, because he has it all, he follows after you, God. He's upright and he's blameless, God, because you've given him all of these things. But if you take them all away, he'll curse you. And so Satan did exactly that. And what happened? Job, in the end of Job chapter 1, he said, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. And in all of this... In losing everything that he had, Job continued to honor God. I've got a question for you. What would happen if you lost everything that you owned? What if you today lost your iPod and your, 
your MacBook and your, your cameras and your, your bank accounts and your credit cards. Or maybe you lost a family member. Maybe today you lost your mom and your dad or your brothers and your sisters. What, what would happen to you? Where would you be? What, what type of attitude would you have? Would you blame God? Would you curse God to his face? Or would you say to God, in all of this, God, I still honor you. Greatness is never found in materialism. And greatness is also never found in power. If we continue reading in this passage, and we slip over into chapter 2, and we read in chapter 2, in verses 3 through 6, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my, Job, my, my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So then Satan comes up with a different plan. Satan answered to the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but you stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely cause you, curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. Here, after Satan had already ripped everything away from Job, all of his possessions were gone, all of his children were gone, all of the things that made him great in the world's eyes were now gone. gone. And, and Satan said, But yet, yeah, the reason he continues to bless you is because he's healthy. Uh, he has power physically. He's, he's able to do anything he wants to do. But, but you touch his body. And you take that health away from him. You take that power away from him. And, and what will happen is he will surely, what? Curse you to your face. And so God allowed Satan to touch his health, to touch his body. And the scriptures tell us that, that immediately Job was covered from head to toe in boils. Painful, oozing, bloody, awful boils that were covered his entire body. And Job chapter 2 even tells us that he had to take a, a broken pot, the sharp pot of a, a part of a broken pot to actually scrape the boils to try to, to do something that would relieve the pain that he was going through. And we see that all of a sudden now, not only all of his possessions gone, not only all of his children are gone, not only all of his servants are gone, but now his health is gone. Now he's sitting there literally in the corner by the wall, not able to even walk. And what was Job's response? What did Job do? How did he respond to the situation that he was now facing? It says in verse 9 that his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And then it says again, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Here, after all of that had been taken from Job, all of his possessions, now all of his health, and yet he still was a man of integrity, still a man who followed after God, still a man who sought uprightness, still a man who sought to be blameless, who did not sin, who did not curse God to his face as Satan knew that he would. You see, even though he had lost his possessions, he knew that materialism it did not result in greatness. He knew that his power, his health, it did not result in greatness. We continue to read that fame does not result in greatness. 
The world will tell you that it does, but if you continue reading in Job, uh, you'll follow, the, follow in verses, chapters 3 all the way on to uh, about chapter 40 or 41 where his friends came and all of the, the people who knew him and the people who knew who he was and, and knew who, how rich he was and knew how powerful he was, that they came and they told him all of the reasons that, that, that he was going through these problems, told him all of the reasons why he was facing all of this adversity. Job was a man who was famous, but, but yet we know that fame had absolutely nothing to do with his greatness. My friends, the one thing that we've got to understand is that when people are addicted to fame, when people are so focused on being popular and being powerful and, and having people look at them and know who they are and, and try to, to make sure that everybody knows their name, when they get addicted to that type of fame and that type of situation in their own lives, that they can never depend on God. They get so caught up in being famous that they forget who they are. You know, in the, in the years that I've uh, had the privilege of being around my dad, you know, I've met a lot of famous people. And I've met a lot of people who, who would walk in a room and you can tell immediately the ones that are humble and the ones who think that they're somebody. You can tell immediately the ones when they walk in the room that they think that they've arrived, they think that they're powerful, they think that, that they are uh, worthy of, far more worthy than anyone else around them. You know, my dad was a famous guy. God allowed him to achieve that kind of fame that, that, that very few people, especially in the religious world, ever achieved. But you know, my dad was the most humble, down-to-earth guy that you'd ever want to meet. He never allowed fame to go to his head, ever. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, it was in uh, 2004, I think, Ron, you were there. We went to the Republican, uh, to, we went to the inauguration. And, uh, and dad... Uh, and mom were, were going to a ball at the inauguration the night before the, the swearing in. They were invited to this special ball. And you remember, Ron, you were with him. And, and he went to the inauguration. He went to this ball. And everyone was wearing tuxedos. And dad had to wear a tuxedo. And dad hated to wear tuxedos. Uh, he didn't mind wearing suits every day at the beach or wherever he happened to be. But tuxedos, that's another thing. And so he had to wear a tuxedo. So he went out and he got a tuxedo. And he's, he's walking into this inaugural ball with senators and congressmen and rock stars and, and, and television stars and politicians, celebrities like crazy. And dad's walking in, he's wearing this tuxedo. And, and because this tuxedo was one that he had rented, um, he had to wear uh, suspenders with it to keep the pants up. And some of you who maybe are, are not quite as skinny as David McKinney understand what I'm talking about. Well, he had to wear these suspenders. The problem is that the suspenders were not connected in the back. And Ron, you'll remember that as my dad walked down the, in, the entrance to this hall and walking in and all the cameras were taking pictures, my dad's pants fell to his knees. The worst part about it is that my dad and my mom didn't know. And dad leaned over to mom and said, it's kind of cold in here. And so they're walking in. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were walking into that situation... With all of those people around, with people knowing who, you know, if they knew who I was, and people were taking pictures of me as I was walking into a room and my pants dropped, I would turn around and walk out of the room, and, and I would guarantee that I would never be around those people again. But uh, Ron or Duke, I can't remember who it was, uh, you know, quickly grabbed his pants and pulled them up. I think that was you, wasn't it, Ron? So just so you know, if you ever wonder what Ron Godwin does around here, he pulls the people's pants up. So Ron grabbed his pants and pulled his pants up and whispered in his ear, hey, you've got a problem with your suspenders. So, you know, while Dad is standing there in front of cameras, Ron's trying to fix the, 
the, uh, the, the, I guess the little clips in the back of the, yeah, and so he's doing that, and apparently Ron doesn't do a very good job about that, because a few minutes later, Dad was walking down into the middle of this hall, and people are all around, and guess what happened again? His pants dropped yet again. Well, this time, Ron pulls the pants back up again. Dad's trying to be cool and try not to act like, you know, nothing's going on. You know, I'll be honest with you. I would have run from the room in horror. I would not have stayed in that room. And, and, but Dad was laughing about it. I mean, here he was. The people were taking photographs. Press were taking photographs of him with his pants around his knees. You know, standing there in front of an inaugural ball. And yet Dad didn't care. And you know why Dad didn't care? Because he realized, you know what? He was just a human just like anybody else. He had problems just like everybody else. He went through situations just like everybody else. And he thought it was funny. You see... The world will tell you that fame is all important. The world will tell you, you know what, your image is everything. Being popular is everything. Making sure that everybody knows who you are and looks up to you and that they think that you're perfect, that's everything. My friends, I want to tell you something, that fame will never equate to greatness. Popularity will never equate to greatness. Being somebody will never equate to greatness. So then the question is this, how do you become great? What do you do to become great? I want to share with you a couple of quick things from this passage that we can very quickly find out why and what it is that helps us to be great. First thing is this. Always, always, always live life for others. Get over yourself. Quit worrying about you. Quit worrying about who you are and live your life for other people. This morning, we took that offering for the Salvation Army. We took uh, that offering for the Love Kitchen in New York City. We took it for needy families in our community. When you leave today, the kettles will be out there where you can help the Salvation Army. At, at Thomas Road Baptist Church, for the last couple of months, we've been uh, taking up these boxes for orphans. We've been taking up these, these teddy bears that we're sending down to Columbia. We took up over uh, 7,600 teddy bears that we're sending to orphans for Christmas in Columbia. We took up uh, 2,500 boxes that'll go to orphans in Africa. Uh, we collected 26 thousand dollars last or two Sundays ago to help rebuild a church that was destroyed in the hurricane that came through in Texas in San Leon, Texas a few months ago. Uh, we are involved in all of these projects. You took up an offering last semester to help adopt some children and, and to bring them to America and so they could have a family and, and that's happened. All of those things uh, all of those things are resulting in the fact that we're living life not for ourselves for other people. Greatness always comes from living life for others. If you live your life for yourself, if you try to make sure that you're focused on yourself and your needs all the time, you will never become great. Living life for others is always part of greatness. Uh, so what's the second thing? And we look in the passage in Job, uh, Job chapter 1. And it says here in the description of Job's family, it says, And his sons would go and feast in their houses, in each on his appointed day. And would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the day of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And then it says, I think, a very important sentence in four words. It said, thus Job did regularly. You see, Job understood the principle of living life for others because every morning he would get up and he would pray for every member of his family. He would try to do everything he could to make a difference in his family. He knew that living life with others was important. He also knew that God was his source. 
The world will tell you, you know what, all that's important is making sure that you look out for yourself, look out for your own needs, don't worry about other people. The world will tell you, you know what, your source is inside, that you can get all the money, that you can get all the power, that you can get all the fame. Job knew that greatness came and resulted from knowing God as our source. He went straight to God and he sought God's face on every situation that he faced. He sought God's face even for his children to make sure that, that even in his children's lives and as they were going through life, that he regularly went to God to pray for protection, to put a hedge around his family. We know over in Job chapter 42, in verse 1, and when we talk about knowing that God is our source, in Job chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Know that God is your source. Next thing we've got to do besides living life for others and knowing God is our source is we've got to follow his will. Again, over in Job chapter 42 and verse 10. In 42.10 it says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. After this entire book tells the story of what Job went through, after all of Job's possessions had taken away from him, after his family had been destroyed, after all of his friends had come in and told him all of the things that he'd done wrong, wrong and told him all of the things, the mistakes that he's made, the sins that he's committed, after his wife looked at him in the face and said, curse God and die. Yet here at the end of this passage, we see that Job continued to follow God's will. In Job chapter 42, in the first few verses of that passage, God was talking to Job's friends. God was, was venting his anger against Job's friends who had told him for the last 40 chapters all the things that he had done wrong. And God told his friends that after my servant Job prays for you, that I will forgive you. And so Job, when the world would say retribution, when the world would say revenge, when the world would say, Job, walk away from those friends, walk away from that wife, because you don't need them. Look what they've done to you. You walk away from them. Job followed God's will, and it says, when he prayed for them, when he did what God told him to do, when he did exactly what it was that God intended for him to do, God blessed him even more than he had in the first. Knowing God is our source. We've got to understand that it is not about us. I put on the back wall of Thomas Road Baptist Church, after my dad passed away, I put a big sign on the back wall of that church that said, not I, but Christ. And it's been there ever since. And the reason is because I don't ever want me or anyone else to walk into that room and think that anything that happens in that room is about anyone else than Jesus Christ. When I stand up on that pulpit and I preach those sermons, I want everyone in the room to know that it's not me. The words that I'm sharing are not my words. It's not my power. It's not my ability. It's not my talent. When Charles sings, it's not his talent. It's not his ability. When the people stand, thousands of people stand all over that room and they, they raise their hands and their voices to God, it's not about us. It's all about God. We talked about living life for others. We talked about making sure that, that God is our source. We talked about following his will. You can never follow God's will if you're only concerned about your well-being. Follow after God. Follow his will. Know that it's not about us. In Job chapter 42, in the last uh, two verses of the passage, it says after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. And then it said, so Job died old and full of days. 
Most of the times you read that passage and skip right over, it's not that big of a deal. So he lived another 140 years. So he saw his family to four generations. So he died old and full of days. But you know what those words full of days means? It means that he died after living a life that was full of life. Full of incredible things. Full of everything that anybody could possibly ever imagine for their own lives. That he was able to accomplish and do and see incredible things. Why? Not because he worried about possessions. Not because he worried about power. Not because he worried about fame. Not because he worried about knowledge. But because he focused on God and lived life following after God's will. You want to obtain greatness? Live life for others. Know that God is your source. Follow after God's will. And then the last thing we've got to do to make sure we understand what greatness comes from is we live for His glory and not our glory. Live for God's glory, not our own. The world will tell you that all that's important is making sure that people know who you are, making sure that people recognize you, make sure that you're popular, make sure that you're liked. A couple of days ago... I was up in Washington with Charles Billingsley. We were up there for the, the World AIDS Day. We were there with Rick Warren and, and uh, for a Saddleback Civil Forum, and President Bush was there. And in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of that discussion about what uh, President Bush has been able to do through his programs in Africa to assist and to help uh, uh, needy people, people who are, who are dying of AIDS, and how uh, America has sent billions of dollars to try to make a difference on that continent, President Bush said something on Monday that I think was powerful. He said this, he said, everybody wants to be liked, but wouldn't it be great if we all focus rather not on rather uh, uh, being liked, but rather doing things that are worthy of being liked? That's a powerful statement. In other words, quit worrying about making sure that people like you and get out there and do something for God's glory that is worthy of people honoring you, worthy of being liked. Get out there and make a difference in people's lives. Get out there and do something that will help other people. Get involved with the Salvation Army. Get involved in, in homeless uh, groups and, and, and with soup kitchens and, and all of those types of things. Why? Because when you are doing things for God's glory and not your own glory, that's when greatness shows up. My friends, if you want to understand how to obtain greatness, if you want to understand what it means to be a young champion for Christ, that you hear those phrases around here all the time, you hear us talk about it all the time, I can promise you, I can assure you that there will be not one thing you learn in the classroom in this school, as great as Liberty University is, there's not one thing that you will learn here that will make you great other than this, that it's all about God. Greatness can never be achieved without goodness and goodness can never be achieved without God listen to that again greatness can never be achieved without goodness and goodness can never be achieved without God Job understood that Job understood that principle Job understood that it wasn't about him he got over himself pretty quickly. He got past all of the possessions. He got past all of the, the fame. He got past all of the power. And in that great book of Job, he even says at one time, yet he slay me, yet I'll trust him. If God takes my own life, I still trust him because greatness comes from goodness and goodness comes from God.
If there's one thing that I want you to walk out of this room today with, it's this. Understanding that when you get to the end of who you are, when you stop worrying about who you are, about what you have, about what you own, about who likes you and who thinks that you're popular and and who thinks you're wonderful, when you get to the end of who you are, that is when you get to the beginning of who God is. When you get to the end of you, that's when you get to the beginning of God. And when you get to the beginning of God, that's when greatness shows up. Today we're going to end this convocation a little bit differently. I'm going to ask Charles and Adam if they would to come. Charles wrote a song a number of years ago. And in this song, it basically says this, is that when you get to the end of who you are, you get to the beginning of God. So what I want you to do right now is I want every head bowed and every eye closed. As we come to the conclusion of this semester, as we come to the conclusion of this convocation, as we come to the conclusion of, of, of this year, As Charles sings this song, I want every single one of us to look inside, to take an inventory, to explore our own minds and our own hearts and ask ourselves the question, are we trying to achieve greatness according to the world's standards or are we trying to achieve greatness according to God's? Are we living life for others? Are we tapping into God as our source? Are we following after His will? And are we living life for God's glory. As Charles leads this song, ask yourself those four questions. Ask yourself if that's who you are. And if you're not, then my friends, as you walk out this semester, as you walk out and you go home to your families all around this country and all around the world, begin to do everything you possibly can to start seeking after the greatness that comes from goodness, realizing that the goodness only comes from God. If I counted the ways you've been faithful to me and I tried to write it all down on page after page the story would be of the unchanging love I have found Though you live in my heart, still I hunger, oh Lord, to know you even more. So I come just to draw from your well, pour out your love on me, and I stand in the And savor the mystery You have mercies I've never imagined Yet every morning they're new Cause the end of all I could hope for Is just the beginning Every time I've been weak or I've tested your grace and I've needed forgiveness again, 
Just the beginning, just the beginning of you. Father, today we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that 2,000 years ago you came to this earth as that little baby, that you were born among men, that you walked among us, and that you went to that cross 33 years later, that you laid down your life for us, that you paid the price, the ultimate price, the ultimate sacrifice, so that each of us could tap into that power tap into that mercy, tap into that grace that you so willingly give. And so, Lord, right now, I pray for every person that's in this room, as we walk out from this room today, that you will help us to understand, help us to to comprehend the idea and the fact that in you is all of our strength, that in you we can find all of our power, in you we can find everything that we possibly can need to make it through life, to make it through our exams, to make it through our schooling, to make it through the the crises that we face in our lives and in our families and the situations that we all go through. God, I pray that we will depend on you and that we will begin to understand that living life for your glory and not our glory is what it's all about. Lord, for that, we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.